0: Hey everyone! What's coming up is a special bonus episode unrelated to our season on racism in America. We thought the topic of the filibuster is timely and important for everyone to hear and understand. In fact, we think it's so important that you should be able to read the transcript too. Now normally transcripts are only available with a paid subscription to our civics club over on Patreon, but this is a special treat we wanted to share with you. Head over to patreon.com backslash futurehindsight to access the transcript. See you there and enjoy the show.
1: Welcome to Future Hindsight. I'm your host, Mila Atmos. Each week, I speak with citizen change makers who spark civic engagement in our society. Our guest today is Ellie Zupnik. He's the spokesperson for Fix Our Senate, a group dedicated to ending the Senate filibuster. Even though Democrats won the White House, gained a narrow majority in the Senate, and held on to the House of Representatives, there's plenty of room for Republicans to obstruct the Biden agenda. This episode will explain how the Senate filibuster actually works, why it's anti-democratic, and hence why the time has come to eliminate
2: it. The filibuster has never been used more and bipartisanship and compromise has never been seen less. So clearly there is something wrong. Clearly we need to make changes. I'm hoping that the conversation ultimately is not gonna be about some arcane parliamentary procedure. It's gonna be about things that people care about. It's gonna be about the Voting Rights Act. It's gonna be about COVID relief. It's gonna be about raising the minimum wage.
1: Let's listen in. Thank you for joining us. Great to be on so to get us started what is the filibuster how does it work
2: that's a great question the filibuster is the rule in the senate that allows bills to pass only when they can get 60 votes it gets a little bit more complicated than that it actually allows bills to pass when they have 50 votes but it only allows the bill to come to a vote if it has 60 votes you may hear people talk about a bill needing 60 votes to pass in the senate That means that it needs 60 votes to clear the filibuster hurdle, not 50 votes to pass. So if any senator wants to, say, stop a bill or slow down a bill, they can put a hold on it. They can say they're going to filibuster it. They can actually filibuster it by going to the floor. But the bottom line is that in order to clear a hurdle from any senator that wants to stop a bill, they're going to need 60 votes to stop it.
1: Maybe it's easiest to have an example and illustrate how it works. So let's say I'm a senator and I bring a bill to the floor and you want to filibuster it. How do you do it?
2: So if a senator wants to bring a bill to the floor, you know, let's say it's a bill to raise the minimum wage. Right now, the minimum wage hasn't been raised in many years. It's at $7.25 an hour. It needs to be raised. A number of people are talking about raising it to $15 an hour. If a senator brings a bill to the floor to raise the minimum wage, there would be a debate on it there would ultimately be a vote on it. And if the cloture vote, the vote to actually end the debate and get to the final passage, doesn't hit 60, the vote doesn't get to move. The vote is filibustered. The bill is filibustered. And usually in the Senate these days, that means the bill is dead. So this is a new phenomenon. It used to be the case that bills could pass in the Senate like in the House. If they have 50 votes, if they have a majority, they would be debated They would be voted on, and if there's more yeas than nays, the bill would pass, and if it passes the House, it could get signed into law. But these days, the Senate has become a de facto supermajoritarian institution where a minority of senators, just 41 senators, can stop anything and everything by using this tool called the filibuster that was never intended to be used this way.
1: So the filibuster is a tool to prevent a vote in a way. So basically if you go to cloture and you need 60 votes to then vote on it, did I get that right?
2: (laughs) That's right. And there's two ways that the word filibuster gets used and I I think it's worth breaking it down a little bit. So when most people say a senator is filibustering a bill, they are saying that they are on the floor talking about the bill, like you would see in the movie Mr. Smith Goes to Washington, or like people think about when they think about what Strom Thurmond did with the civil rights bills and other Southern Democrats did to stop civil rights bills, where they would go to the floor, talk for 24 hours, what Senator Sanders did at one point during the Trump administration, what Senator Cruz has done a couple of times during the Obama administration, sit on the floor and talk for hours and hours. That's the common conception of filibuster. That's what most people mean when they say a senator is filibustering. But the filibuster as a rule itself really refers to a rule in the Senate Rules of Procedure called Rule 22, and that's the rule that establishes cloture. It's the rule that says that you can only end debate if you have either unanimous consent to end debate, every senator saying it's okay to move to the final vote, or you do what's called a cloture vote, and Rule 22 says that you need 60 votes in order to get cloture. It used to be 67 votes. In the 70s, that was brought down to 60 votes. I can go back even further because it used to not exist at all until 1917 when it was instituted in order to have some mechanism for ending debate altogether. But the filibuster rule itself is more of a silent, insidious rule that establishes that 60 vote threshold that doesn't allow anything to pass unless it could get there.
1: Tell us why it was implemented in the first place.
2: So it's important to note that the founders, the framers of the constitution had absolutely no intention of creating a filibuster, a supermajority requirement. In fact, when they were writing the constitution, there was a lot of conversation that we know from their notes and and writings at the time that they specifically wanted to move away from some of the supermajoritarian requirements from the Articles of Confederation. They talked about how it would not be a good thing if a supermajority were required, or as they would put it, if a minority were able to stop the will of the majority. So we know that they did not intend to have supermajority requirements. In fact, in the constitution lays out a number of cases that do need supermajority requirements, impeachment, expulsion of other members from the Senate, overriding a veto is another one. We know that there are some cases that they expressly wanted supermajority requirements but for regular legislation, they actively did not. So for a good chunk of the initial history of our constitution, of our Senate, there was no such thing as a filibuster. If a bill got majority in the House, it would pass. If a bill got majority in the Senate, it would pass. It wasn't until the mid 1800s, uh, a little bit before the Civil War, that there was a rule change. Um, actually, it's a good story. So it's uh, most people know that Aaron Burr they know Aaron Burr for his famous duel with Alexander Hamilton. But one of the other things that Aaron Burr did that was damaging in a different way was when he was vice president, right before he killed Hamilton, he oversaw a rules change process in the Senate that according to the lore, this isn't known for sure, but the lore is that this was an accident. He accidentally left out the provision in the Senate rules that allowed them to move to final passage with a simple majority. And from that point forward, there was no way to stop debate in the Senate from you know the early 1800s or so from this rule change. So it took about 30 years after that for senators to kind of realize that this happened. There still were debates, there still were votes. Nobody took advantage of the fact that there was no longer a way to actually end debate until this got pulled into the civil rights conversation and the pre-Civil War debate between the North and the South. And it was actually on a banking bill that was introduced that a Southern Democrat first filibustered a bill. It wasn't called a filibuster back then. It took a little while for the name filibuster to even be used, but the filibusters, they realized that they can use that to just debate forever and stop bills in their tracks that would either prevent the expansion of slavery or block commerce involving slavery, which is what the North was trying to do at some points before the Civil War. That was when the filibuster really started. It didn't change much for 30 years, 40 years. The Civil War kind of put a hold on the Southern Democrats' use of the filibuster until afterwards. Then it came out full force to stop civil rights legislation again and again. There were over 200 anti-lynching bills that were introduced in Congress. None of them were able to pass. They were all filibustered if they ever made it to the Senate. There's famous filibusters from Strom Thurmond, from Senator Russell, from Senator Byrd. And it wasn't until the 50s and the 60s that they were finally able to get some civil rights legislation across the finish line. The 1957 civil rights bill was passed Only when they watered it down and the filibuster was dropped, it wasn't until the 60s and LBJ that he was finally able to pass a civil rights bill by overcoming a filibuster. That was the first time in Senate history that a filibuster had been overcome on a civil rights bill and kind of squashed that Southern Democratic opposition to the filibuster.
1: It's clear that the filibuster is anti-democratic. Can you explain what the difference is between a supermajority and a simple majority? Because I think that deserves some fleshing out.
2: There's a lot of ways to get at this question. I care a lot about accountability for our politicians. When politicians go around the country or or they go around their home district in their state and they tell voters they're going to do something, they should be held accountable for that. But what a supermajority requirement creates is it allows these politicians to win office, to take control of government, and then to be able to just blame the other side for not getting anything done. I think a perfect example of this is what we saw in 2009. President Obama, and he didn't attempt to do this, this was forced on him, but President Obama won the White House. The Democrats controlled the Senate. They had at times 60 votes, at times 59 votes. The Democrats controlled the House. But there was a lot that President Obama couldn't do when he didn't have 60 votes and couldn't overcome a filibuster. But people across the country, it's not their jobs to follow the ins and outs of Senate procedure. They're not necessarily going to be thinking every day who has the ability to block something from the minority. They think Democrats are in control. They promised us something. If we see government in disarray, if we see gridlock and dysfunction, we're going to point our finger at the Democrats. And Senator McConnell understood that. Senator Mitch McConnell was the minority leader at the time. He's the minority leader now. He's been the leader of the Senate Republicans for a long time. That was one of his great innovations in realizing that it was the majority that was going to get blamed, even if the minority had the ability to block everything. So Senate Democrats and ultimately President Obama had all of the accountability for getting things done but they ultimately did not have the power to do the things that they promised to do. Senator McConnell was able to block a whole lot. There were bills that passed the House on clean energy. Waxman-Markey would have taken a big step forward on climate change, passed the House, never saw the light of the day in the Senate because it would get filibustered. Of course, I'm sure uh, many listeners remember what happened with the Affordable Care Act, where they had to do a whole dance to push the final pieces through the budget process called reconciliation, which allows them to pass certain pieces of legislation with a simple majority, but they couldn't do it in the normal way because they had lost their 60-vote supermajority after the tragic passing of Senator Kennedy and Republican Scott Brown won that seat in Massachusetts. But it it really allowed Republicans and allows Republicans to prove their thesis that government can't work whenever Democrats are in charge and make it seem like there's disarray and, and gridlock. And then when they take charge, They're able to do a whole lot of the things they want to do with a simple majority. And this is also not something that is talked about a lot, but there's a reason that Senator McConnell didn't really care too much about getting rid of the filibuster when he was in charge. When Republicans controlled the White House, the Senate and the House in 2017 and 2018, their agenda really consisted of cutting taxes for the wealthy and confirming Supreme Court judges and a whole lot of other circuit and district court judges. And what's not well known is that they can do those things with a simple majority. They can confirm judges because the rules were changed. Leader Reid in 2013 got rid of the filibuster for nominees because of Republican obstruction. They wouldn't let any Obama nominees get confirmed. Senator McConnell then got rid of the rule that allowed a filibuster on Supreme Court nominees in 2017 when he wanted to confirm Gorsuch in the face of a Democratic filibuster. And as I mentioned, that reconciliation process allows him to cut taxes for the rich. So he never felt any need to get rid of the legislative filibuster. And what we ended up with is a Senate where it's very easy to do things like cut taxes and maybe raise some spending in some areas and confirm judges. But if you want to do anything like democracy reforms or immigration reform or common sense gun safety, expanding the Affordable Care Act, those are still subject to a 60-vote supermajority requirement, and those just can't get done unless that's fixed.
1: Okay, so how do we fix it? How can you actually remove the filibuster? Because is that then going to be subject to a filibuster? (laughs)
2: That's a great question, and there were actually many years when it wasn't exactly clear. There were conversations for years, uh, Senator Merkley was a leader in the Senate and driving these conversations, trying to figure out exactly what they could use procedurally to get rid of the filibuster, because in order to formally change Senate rules, you need two thirds of the Senate to agree, which is an even higher bar than the filibuster. And there was no way that would happen. The consensus that eventually emerged, and it ultimately became a bipartisan consensus, which I'll get into in a minute, is that you don't need to formally change the rules with two-thirds of the Senate. The Senate is a precedent-driven institution. Unlike the House, they don't vote on the rules every single Congress. The rules carry over from Senate to Senate, and the presiding officer of the Senate at the time is bound to interpret the precedent that's been set and make rulings according to that, he or she uses the guidance of the parliamentarian who, if you're ever watching C-SPAN, you'll see a parliamentarian often whispering into the ear of the presiding officer, telling him or her what the precedent is, what the rule is, how to rule. And the presiding officer then makes a ruling based on what that precedent is. So the consensus that emerged was that even if you couldn't formally change the rule with 67 votes, what you can do is you can challenge the ruling of the chair on a precedent and then overturn that ruling with a simple majority. And I can give an example, I think that makes it a little bit clearer. So in 2013, Majority Leader Reid and President Obama were getting increasingly frustrated that Republicans had a wholesale blockade on President Obama's nominees, both for judges, for the administration, even sub-cabinet level positions, and even for boards like the National Labor Relations Board that were understaffed and couldn't make decisions to protect workers, and Republicans were very happy to keep it that way. At some point, the frustration bubbled over and Senator Reid decided to do something about it. He went to the Senate floor and he tried to confirm one of these nominees. He held a cloture vote. The cloture vote got 52, 53 votes, something short of 60. And then the presiding officer asked the parliamentarian, what's the ruling here? Parliamentarian said, this vote fails because you didn't get 60. And then the presiding officer then reported that out to the full Senate. Senator Reid then challenged the ruling of the parliamentarian and said, I have a point of order. I would like to overturn your ruling. That was only subject to a 50-vote threshold. So all the Democrats were then able to vote with Senator Reid to overturn the ruling of the chair, therefore creating a whole new precedent. And he created that precedent narrowly. He said, only for nominees and not counting Supreme Court nominees. For those nominees, we only need 50 votes for cloture. No longer do we need 60 votes. So from that moment, because there was a new precedent set, filibusters were only available to use on Supreme Court nominees and legislation. And then, of course, the exact same thing happened when the shoe was on the other foot with Senator McConnell. He was frustrated that Democrats were holding up Gorsuch, the nominee for Supreme Court at the time. So he went through the exact same song and dance with the parliamentarian to then eliminate that final barrier on supreme court nominees to set a new precedent there too it's convoluted it's very deep in the parliamentary weeds but that's the mechanism they used
1: so then this would also be the mechanism to end the filibuster potentially
2: That's exactly right. Majority Leader Schumer and his Democratic caucus, if he had 50 votes of his full caucus plus the vote of Vice President Harris, she would break the tie. He would be able to do the same procedure where he would challenge the ruling of the chair, call a vote to overturn the ruling of the chair. And if he won that vote, then that would set a new precedent on the legislative filibuster. And we assume it would be to eliminate the 60 vote majority requirement and turn it into a simple majority.
1: So why is now the time to do this?
2: There have been a number of people who have been saying The time was long ago. I mentioned Senator Merkley before. He's been a leader on this, uh, a real forward thinker. Many years ago, he wrote a memo, sent it to the caucus explaining why the filibuster needed to go. He spoke to issues that you alluded to about the already undemocratic nature of the Senate, how it's so skewed toward smaller states, more rural states, more conservative states, and especially as people move into cities, it's going to be skewed even further, giving Republicans and conservatives an advantage. The filibuster is something that turbocharges that. You can't do anything necessarily at this point about the Senate, aside from potentially adding additional states. You can't fundamentally change the undemocratic nature of the Senate. It's enshrined in the Constitution. But what you can do is take away the filibuster that turbocharges that. That makes it so that a tiny minority can stop everything. So. He's been working at it for years. What really has fired people up right now is how much needs to get done. We have a climate crisis, we have growing inequality. We saw over the past year, what happens when an incompetent administration tries to manage a pandemic. We have more people crying out for racial justice and police reform and immigration reform. And then of course, our democracy. We have serious issues with our elections, with the trust that people have in government, with the systems that we have generally just people losing faith in them and for good reason, there's so much that needs to happen and not a lot of time. I personally think, and I think a lot of people agree, especially those on the left of center side of the spectrum, that we may not have another opportunity for a long time. We're heading into a redistricting period. Democrats didn't do as well as they had hoped in the 2020 elections at the state level, which means that there's a whole lot of Republican control over redistricting and in states that have a history of gerrymandering or slicing up districts in ways that it advantage their side politically, both parties do it. But in the past few years, we've seen Republicans do it a whole lot more. They're primed to do that. There's a very good chance that Democrats could lose the House in 2022. There's a chance they could lose the Senate in 2022. We don't know how much longer Democrats are going to hold the White House. There could be a two-year window now, not to cheat, not to do anything extreme, but to fix the problems that are glaringly obvious in our system and put the country on a better track. And if we don't do it now, not only could the window close for those electoral reasons I laid out? But we're at a point now where people are really unhappy, really frustrated with their government not working. I personally believe that that's a part of what led to President Trump's ascent, a part of what led to people thinking that they had nothing to lose because nothing was working well, so they may as well hand government to someone who is going to blow it all up and just turn the table over. And I worry personally very much that if we can't restore some faith in government, if we can't show people that they put government in the hands of Democrats who made certain promises and then have them deliver on those promises and then fix the systems that are failing us, restore faith, that we're going to see someone even worse than Trump down the line, that we're going to see even more deterioration of people's faith in our democracy. And I think that's a bad thing. I know a lot of people agree.
1: Yeah, I definitely agree. So let's take it a little bit step by step. I want to get to the idea of how eliminating the filibuster would deepen American democracy. I really think this goes hand in hand with proving that we can actually deliver better governance. What is the first bill that you think would be most effective to pass, let's say, in the absence of a filibuster?
2: So, right now, Democrats have introduced and will be holding hearings and moving on a bill, the For the People Act, H.R. 1. It has a Senate companion that's S1. This is a bill that would tackle money in politics. It would try and take money out of politics. It would tackle some of these gerrymandering issues. It's not the whole way, but it would at least take some real serious steps to cut down on the influence of money in politics and make this redistricting process more fair. Not have members of the House choose their districts, but have voters choose their representatives in a much more fair way. So I think that's step one. For lots of reasons, the assumption is, and and I'm pretty confident in this, Republicans will filibuster this. They don't want to see this happen. They want to press their advantage right now. While they think they have it, they want to engage in gerrymandering. They benefit often, although There have been some shifts in recent years, but they benefit from big money in politics more than Democrats do. And so they they would filibuster that. And if the filibuster were eliminated, there's a very good chance that that passes pretty quickly. It passed the House already, and the expectation is that it would move with 50 votes, potentially pick off some Republicans as well, possibly. But it certainly would not get to 60. So it could pass if the filibuster is eliminated. It cannot pass if the filibuster exists. But then there's other bills, you know, the the John Lewis Voting Rights Act. That's something that needs to pass. We saw this past election, the serious problems with voter suppression across the country. We saw that in Georgia leading up to the 2018 election. We saw Stacey Abrams has really shined a spotlight on that and did so much work in Georgia to get people registered, to help people get to the polls. But it's a major structural issue in Georgia and across the country where there's significant voter suppression. We're seeing states now across the country take advantage of the Supreme Court ruling in Shelby that gutted the Voting Rights Act to further keep people away from the polls, often it's minority communities, often it's people who are losing the most and could gain the most from the kind of policies that could be implemented if there was better representation and stronger democracy in our country. I would say the Voting Rights Act is another real serious policy that if the filibuster exists, The conventional wisdom is Democrats would not be able to move that despite everything that has happened. Republicans would still filibuster, wouldn't be able to move in the Senate. If the filibuster were eliminated, I think you would see that pass as well.
1: So, in terms of the order, they already put forward H.R. 1. Do you think then, let's say it gets filibustered, and then will Schumer say, okay, I'm going to challenge this and then set a new precedent? and this way eliminate the filibuster? I mean, in an ideal world, is this the way that you imagine it?
2: What we are pushing for from our Fix Our Senate Coalition and what a number of people on the progressive side right now in the good government world are pushing for is for the filibuster to be eliminated as quickly as possible. I think that democracy reforms, the Voting Rights Act, would be a great way to do it. I personally think that the Voting Rights Act specifically has some poetry to it, given how the filibuster has been used so often over the years to block civil rights legislation. And with the passing of Representative Lewis so recently, and at his funeral, President Obama specifically talked about the filibuster, called it a Jim Crow relic that should be eliminated if it got in the way of equality and progress in our country. I can control what President Biden's agenda is how he wants to sequence that. None of us can control exactly how Senate Democrats want to sequence these votes. We can make our voices heard. We can weigh in. We can push them to make sure that As soon as that obstruction happens, they're ready to move quickly to push through it. We're not there yet. There are a number of Democrats who are still not quite comfortable with getting rid of the filibuster. It's not going to be easy. It's not going to be simple. There's not unanimity. And with 50 votes in the Senate for Democrats, there needs to be unanimity on the Democratic side to do it. I'm confident that Republicans are going to show fairly quickly that it's necessary and to use President Biden's words, they will be obstreperous and stop things from happening. And what he said before his election was if they prove to be obstreperous, he would be ready to examine the filibuster. He's been a longtime supporter of the filibuster as something that he believes increases bipartisanship or forces more compromise, but he wants to get some big, bold things done. So I think the next couple of weeks and months are going to be critical. Democrats and some Republicans are going to have to face a really tough decision. Is it more important for them to deliver on the promises they made to the country, to their constituents when they ran for office and when voters handed them full control of government? Or are they going to prioritize a Senate rule that has changed multiple times over the year, that's not enshrined in the Constitution, certainly not carved in stone, and that has been abused by the minority to block anything and everything. And that choice is going to be really important. It could determine the future of our country and our democracy.
1: So talk to us a little bit about the Democrats who are reluctant to get rid of the filibuster. Most notably, of course, Senators Manchin and Sinema have expressed that they want to preserve the filibuster. Now, why would they want to do that?
2: So I'll take Senator Manchin first because I'm I'm a little bit more familiar. He's been around the Senate longer. He has a longer history on this. But I I think Senator Sinema is in agreement. They believe that the filibuster is something that promotes bipartisanship and forces more compromise. Their position is that if you only need 50 votes, then it will be easier for a majority to pass legislation and not have to turn to the minority, not take their input, not compromise, and just jam things through. And they think that if the filibuster exists, it would force the party in the majority to have to reach out to the other side and get results. And I think that there was a period of time when they were right. There was a period of time when the filibuster was not often used, when it wasn't the de facto supermajority requirement that it became. It was sadly used to block almost all civil rights bills, and that's a huge but. But for the most part, it was not used. It was not a part of the Senate. So I remember I came to the Senate in 2009, right when Senator McConnell first had this innovation where he realized that he could and it would help him politically if he did block anything and everything. But when I got to the Senate, people were still talking about needing 50 votes to pass a bill. And especially on things like appropriations bills, spending bills, the assumption was that if you could get a majority, there wasn't an automatic assumption that there would be a filibuster. That came later. So there was a time when the threat of the filibuster and the fact that any senator, when they deemed it to be very important, pull out this tool and say, no, stop, you can't pass this with 50, you need 60, that could have promoted bipartisanship and compromise when the filibuster was used that way. However, in the version of the filibuster that exists now, where it's a de facto supermajority requirement and critically, where the minority has realized that they can use it to block anything and everything. And I should add, as the parties have become more sorted and ideological, where there's no longer that overlap, where you have the most conservative Democrat is maybe more conservative than the most liberal Republican and vice versa, that doesn't exist anymore. The most conservative Democrat, Joe Manchin, is still more liberal than the most liberal Republican. Susan Collins, Lisa Murkowski, potentially. So there's no longer any sorting, there's no longer any overlap. I know Lee Drutman and others have talked about how there used to be four parties and having four parties, Southern Democrats, Northern Democrats, and then conservative Democrats and liberal Democrats and liberal Republicans and conservative Republicans allowed different coalitions to form and compromises to come together that got to that 60 vote threshold fairly easily. That doesn't exist anymore. Partisanship rules the day, and it is no longer the case that you can get the minority to come to the table just because they need to, just because that's the only thing that passes. This is something that more and more people are talking about. The filibuster actually stopped bipartisanship for the reasons I articulated, but also because When the minority realizes that they can stop a bill in its tracks, when they don't let the train leave the station and Senator McConnell can go to his caucus and say, if you stand with me and we don't give Democrats a single vote and we don't let this bill pass, we're gonna win the elections in a year then we're going to get a better bill in two years. If he can say that to them, that's a pretty good argument for his caucus staying together. And even those members who may want something from a bill, they may want a particular provision, or they may want to tweak a certain provision, they feel okay sitting back and saying, we're going to win because we're going to obstruct so much that voters are going to be sick of the ruling party. They'll put us in power. We'll get something better. But if the majority party is able to say to the minority, you can't stop this from happening. The train is leaving the station. Members of the minority are not going to be okay letting that train leave without them. They're going to want to go home to their constituents and tell them what they got, tell them what they did. A popular bill raising the minimum wage, or or an even better example is probably background checks. Background checks, something that's supported by 92% of the country. Common sense background checks, there was a bipartisan bill, Senator Manchin of West Virginia, Senator Toomey of Pennsylvania. It got 53 votes, I believe, when it came up during the Obama years, would have passed the House, would have been signed into law, was filibustered. If the filibuster didn't exist, I can't prove this. It's a counterfactual. But if it came up again, we'll see if I'm right. I think it would crack 60 because once the minority knows it's going to pass, it's a popular piece of legislation. Politicians are politicians. They like popular pieces of legislation, they would jump on knowing that they're going to want to take credit for it and they're not going to have another crack at their version of it because it will pass and it'll get signed into law. So paradoxically, and I think almost counterintuitively, I believe getting rid of the filibuster would lead to more bipartisanship, more compromise, better functioning Senate, and I think more effective government.
1: Great. Actually, that was going to be my next question. (laughs) You know, how will eliminating the filibuster actually change the Senate? You know, philosophically, will it be a more functional place? And you just answered that question. But I have a little bit of a technical question about the filibuster now, which is do you have to announce that you are doing a filibuster? The example that you just used with the 53 votes for the Manchin Toomey bill, how did it get filibustered
2: after it got 53 votes? Unfortunately, you don't have to announce it. It has evolved to become something that is silent. And at times you don't even know who is the person who demanded that the culture vote be a 60 vote threshold or who objected to the consent agreement to go to final passage with a simple 50 vote majority. When there's a vote that comes up, there's something that's called a hotline that goes out to every member's office. It used to be an actual phone, a hotline that the leadership on each side would call every office and say, the majority wants to move to a background check bill. Let's say, are there any objections? And members' offices, usually the legislative director or the chief of staff would say, no objections here, no objections here, no objections here. And if nobody objected, That bill could move to final passage. The leaders can go to the floor, ask for unanimous consent, know that nobody who may not be on the floor at that moment would like to object because they represent the people who are not on the floor when they go to the floor in their leadership capacity, and then things can move to final passage. But if any one person objects, usually in the minority, the minority leader will come to the floor and he will object to the unanimous consent agreement. He will say, there's an objection on my side, we object. Often there won't even be a unanimous consent agreement that comes up. Often the majority doesn't even force the minority to object. It just becomes the case that they move to a culture vote that requires 60. So you often don't even know who's putting the holdout. You don't even know who is slowing down the process. It just happens. And what has evolved is members just got used to this. It started happening so often that there were objections to bills that in previous Senates would never have been objected to, would have moved right through the process. Maybe it failed, maybe it passed, but it would happen on a majority requirement. It became the case that every single one of them was seeing an objection. So it just moved to become a 60 vote threshold. And they started just assuming that there was going to be an objection somewhere, so they were going to move to a cloture vote that required 60. So this gets to what I was saying before, that people think of a filibuster as an action, but the more insidious part of it is just the fact of its existence creates the 60-vote requirement so that everything gets slowed down and hits that barrier. Unless you can cross 60 votes, there's an understanding that the bill cannot move beyond a certain point.
1: I had all of these misconceptions, like you said, that it was an active act to go out there and say, OK, I object. But actually, it's just like, oh, somebody in my caucus objects, and so then we can't go forward. You could make it up almost. <laughs> One person out of 100 could say, I don't want to do this. Uh, I think we should stop discussing this and not bring it to a vote. Now, that's totally anti-democratic. Did I get it right?
2: That's exactly right. Any one person can object to the unanimous consent needed to move to a vote that requires 50. And in today's Senate, when you look at the senators there, I'm sure you can think of three or four who are going to object every single time.
1: That's right. So it sounds like the filibuster really does have to go. Let me ask you this. This is, of course, totally speculative. What do you think would change senators' mansions or senators' cinemas' mind so they could get onto the bandwagon and eliminate the filibuster?
2: I mean, I, I'm hoping that they see the Republican obstruction and they change their minds on their own, first of all. These are both members who are moderate members. In Senator Manchin's case, he comes from a, a pretty red state. Um, President Trump won by huge margins in 2016 and 2020. When it comes to Senator Cinema, she comes from a more purple state, a state where that's trending blue, but is still, you know, not certainly not a blue state quite yet. They're both moderate, pragmatic members. I think there's nothing more moderate and pragmatic than working to fix the Senate, break through the gridlock and dysfunction, and deliver results for your constituents. So my hope is that. They do care about getting results for their constituents. I think they do. They have a legislative agenda. They want to get things done. When it comes to West Virginia, there's a whole lot of needs from economic development and highways, sewer systems and you know, There's healthcare money that needs to go there, especially as, as the country moves away from coal and moves into more clean energy technology that, that West Virginia could benefit a whole lot from. There's a whole lot that needs to happen. And Arizona, of course, also has a whole lot of needs and their people need economic growth and jobs and comprehensive immigration reform and these are members who want to deliver results who want to get things done in fact i know senator manchin has talked about how when he was a governor he liked getting things done and one of the things he doesn't like about being a senator is how it's all talk and no action so i'm hoping that when push comes to shove and they face the decision do we spend 10 years doing nothing but bickering and fighting and pointing fingers at each other and absolutely nothing getting done or do we not say that we were wrong about the filibuster? They don't need to say they were wrong about the filibuster. They can credibly and honestly say, I was right about the filibuster before. I thought it was a tool that promoted bipartisanship and compromise, but it clearly isn't doing that. The filibuster has never been used more, and bipartisanship and compromise has never been seen less. So clearly there is something wrong. Clearly we need to make changes. Hopefully, Center Mansion, Center Cinema will now support these policies and getting them across the finish line. And I'm not going to let this rule stop that from happening. So I'm hoping that can happen. But I think that, you know, even even beyond what they can say and and what they could think, I'm hoping that it's going to be about issues, that it's going to be about the things they care about. I'm hoping that the conversation ultimately is not going to be about some arcane parliamentary procedure. It's going to be about things that people care about. It's going to be about the Voting Rights Act. It's going to be about COVID relief, it's gonna be about raising the minimum wage. And the conversation then is is gonna to have to be, are you gonna get that done with a majority of support and a super majority support among the population, among voters, or are you not? And in the end, they're gonna do the right thing and, and choose to get things done. I get the sense that president biden wants to do that from the way he's talking from what he's saying in the public and what his team is saying about the need to pass big bold legislation they have a robust agenda they want to do big things senator schumer has been working for a long time to win the senate and become majority leader with a democratic president to do big things and i'm pretty hopeful and confident that in the end when push comes to shove They're gonna put their constituents first and they're gonna do what has been done many, many times over the years when it comes to the rules and update the rules to match the moment and to make the Senate work when something in the rules stopped working, you fix it. And I'm hoping that they can do that.
1: Yeah, me too. So what is the downside of removing the filibuster? What do you foresee as maybe an unintended consequence?
2: The primary concern that many people on the left have is that it's what I like to think of as the shoe is on the other foot argument. There's concern that if you get rid of the filibuster now, then maybe in four years, Republicans win the presidency. Maybe they win the Senate and the House too. And then with the filibuster gone, there's legitimate concern about what an unleashed Republican Party would do in government, you know, when it comes to women's health and rights, when it comes to civil rights, when it comes to workers' rights, labor issues, you know, special interests. And there's a whole lot that should concern anyone about what Republicans would do with full power and no filibuster to stop the worst of the legislation that they want to pass. That's a legitimate concern. That is something that people in very good faith argue, and I think it, it's an argument or a concern that needs to be taken seriously. I have a few responses to that. So, first and foremost, I think that there's no reason to believe that not that not getting rid of the filibuster now protects you from. Mitch McConnell getting rid of the filibuster later if he thinks it's in his interests. The best evidence for this, I think, is what I mentioned before, that Senator Reid in 2013 specifically excluded Supreme Court nominees from his elimination of the filibuster on nominees generally under the assumption or expressing the hope that when Republicans took power, they would preserve that, and they would make it so that Supreme Court nominees, the highest court in the land, a lifetime appointment, would still be subject to a 60-vote threshold. But the moment Senator McConnell took control in 2017, he waited, I believe it was three days of Democrats filibustering Gorsuch before he changed the rules and said, no. I'm eliminating the filibuster on Supreme Court nominees too. He would do the exact same thing. I am quite confident if he saw it in his interest, if he believed it was something that would expand his power or advance his ideological interests in 2025. So that's number one. Any kind of forbearance on the part of Democrats in this moment, not only does it not guarantee forbearance by Republicans in three to four years, it doesn't even help it in my view. The other thing I would say, and this gets a little bit to what I mentioned before about the window of opportunity, is four years is a long time. There are some major issues facing our nation when you listen to scientists and hear them talk about the climate crisis and what needs to happen now and how far behind we already are. Democracy reform and fixing our broken democracy and and finding ways to restore that faith that people have lost in the past few decades making sure that voting rights are protected. We don't have much time to fix those issues. And things are bad, but they could get worse. And if we don't do it now because of a concern, even a legitimate concern, about what Republicans can do in four years, I think we're making a big mistake and I think we're missing a big opportunity. The final thing I would say on that point is that making some of these democracy reforms and forcing Republicans to actually cater to the needs, the desires, the interests of the actual majority of the country will make them a more reasonable party and will make it less dangerous when they do take control and the filibuster is eliminated. Republicans right now don't have to cater to the majority. They are a minoritarian party. They haven't won the popular vote in a long time. And this is a shocking number, but Democrats won 41 million more votes than Republicans in the Senate. Republicans are slipping into a minority party, and they are right now intent on protecting their power while being a minority party. What we need to do by making some of these democracy reforms is forcing them to actually become a normal party, actually win, not by cheating, not by preventing voters from going to the polls or by gerrymandering so that they could choose their districts or by having unlimited money in politics, but by actually catering to the needs of the majority and having an agenda that the majority of voters actually supports and actually being able to exist in this multiracial democracy that we have right now and will hopefully continue to have. That is the way that we make sure that, that we take some of the fangs out of the threat that Republicans could take power. They will take power. Republicans will win once again in the future. And my hope is that when they do win, when that does happen, it will be in a system that is fair, where voters actually decide, where they get the majority of votes. And by having to do so... They have moderated their policies and are actually going to do things that are not as scary to a lot of these people who have concerns about the shoe potentially being on the other foot.
1: So as an everyday citizen, what are two things I could be doing to end the filibuster? Because, you know, we're not serving in the Senate, so we could not participate
2: in these votes. So the first thing is... Talk to your senator, reach out. And don't make it about the filibuster. Make it about the issue you care about. If you care about climate change, reach out to your senator and talk to them or their staff about why you believe that climate change needs to be tackled, and then connect the dots. When they say their senator supports climate change legislation, say, "Okay, well, do you support getting rid of the filibuster to get that done? Many of them, thankfully, right now will say yes. Those that don't should be asked to explain why not. Same thing with gun safety. There's a whole lot of people across the country who have seen what happened in Parkland and schools and just cities across the country and who desperately want common sense gun safety legislation and who know that 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 won't get done, who are frustrated that that can't get done. Ask your senator do you support this? If yes, okay, do you support getting rid of the filibuster, the tool that the NRA and their Republican allies use to stop this? Connecting those dots is going to be so important. And that's, I think, the most important thing that people can do so that senators realize that they can't just get away with saying they support legislation. They actually have to account for how they're going to get it done. And even more specifically, they have to account for the thing that is stopping it. It is not enough to promise you'll do something unless you can say you're willing to take the step needed to actually get it done. The second thing I would say is to Educate your friends. It's not an easy issue. It's a procedural issue. It's not on top of people's minds. It's a tough issue to explain, but you can explain it and keep it simple. Post these stories on Facebook and on Twitter or reach out to your friends. When you see a story about Republicans filibustering something, and sometimes you see in the media, it's reported as if this were just the way it is and this is the way it always will be. Tell your friends, hey, did you know that the filibuster didn't actually exist until relatively recently? Did you know that the filibuster was only used to block civil rights bills until McConnell started using it to block literally everything? Do you know that Democrats can change that? All they need is 50 votes to change it. People just don't know these things yet. And because people don't know that yet, there's not nearly enough pressure on members of the Senate to change it and they're able to keep going. The status quo is working for some of them. It's not working for many of them. There's increasing frustration, but the more people talk about this, the more people connect the dots between the issues they care about and the procedural hurdle, the brick wall that stands in the way of actually getting them done, the closer we can get to actually having these senators make that tough choice to change the rules and fix the problem.
1: Well said. Last question looking into the
2: future what makes you hopeful what makes me hopeful is that more and more people across the country and more and more senate democrats specifically are seeing this for what it is 10 years ago this was a truly obscure issue that was relegated to the wonks the parliamentary geeks and maybe some lawyers and activists who were super engaged now It's something that Mitch McConnell was so worried about that his first action as minority leader was to try to guarantee that Democrats would never take the filibuster away. He is worried about this. It hasn't yet reached the level of public consciousness that we need, but it is getting closer to that. More people are understanding this. More people are getting angry about it. More people are worried about what happens if we don't fix the problems that need to get fixed in our democracy, in our country. And more people are willing to take action. I spent two months very worried that Democrats were not going to win the Senate, which would have slammed the door on reforms for two years. But the people of Georgia had a very different idea. And that gave me a lot of confidence and hope that that final push in Georgia to get 50 votes in the Senate for Democrats, the White House for President Biden, the House for Speaker Pelosi and her Democratic caucus, the door is now unlocked and it's on all of us. It's on activists and advocates and ordinary citizens to make your voice heard and make it so that that unlocked door gets opened a little wider and we could see some of these reforms get pushed through. We could fix our democracy and restore that faith that people want to see restored and start getting things done and making our country work again.
1: Here, here. I hope you're right. Thank you very much for being on Future Hindsight and thank you very much for your advocacy on this issue.
2: It's great to be here. And thank you so much for covering these issues and for everything you do on this podcast.
1: We've heard so many times that the Senate is considered the world's greatest deliberative body that I was genuinely surprised to hear that the parliamentary weeds, as Ellie calls it, are so unfair. Like many people, I did think that the filibuster is the action of a senator talking all night to prevent a vote like when Strom Thurmond famously filibustered for over 24 hours to block the passage of the Civil Rights Act of 1957. The fact that one anonymous senator can actually scuttle any and every piece of legislation brought before the Senate is an astounding travesty. And I don't know what's worse, that this has been allowed to happen unchecked for more than 100 years, or that everyday people don't really understand that it's happening at all. Whether or not the filibuster may have been a mistake or whether it really has fostered bipartisanship here and there, what's clear today is that in its history, it was primarily used to serve as a tool of obstruction. It's truly mind-blowing to realize that this Senate rule has had such a damaging impact on our country. Although the Trump administration and the Republican majority under Mitch McConnell are thankfully behind us, it's painfully clear that the obstructionist ways of the opposition are not over. As of this recording, McConnell has blocked the organizing resolution in the Senate, which means that Republicans are still running Senate committees, and therefore, the agenda. If you agree that it's time to end the filibuster, call your senator and let them know what legislation you want to see accomplished and why they must remove the filibuster to make that happen. Next week, our guest is Richard Rothstein. He's the author of The Color of Law, A Forgotten History of How Our Government Segregated America. It uncovers how federal, state, and local policy explicitly created racially homogeneous neighborhoods that violate the Constitution and require remediation.
0: We have a myth that the reason we're segregated in every metropolitan area of this country is because of private activity. It's not just income differences. We think it was because private actors like banks and real estate agencies and developers wouldn't sell to African-Americans or maybe bigoted white homeowners and landlords wouldn't rent to them. The reality is that the reason we are segregated is because of a set of racially explicit federal, state, and local policies They were designed to ensure that African Americans and whites could not live near one another in any metropolitan area of the country.
1: We discussed the indisputable proof that African Americans have been the subject of discrimination by the government through public policy in all aspects of life, well beyond housing, and the continued marginalization of African American communities today. Until next time, stay engaged. I'm Mila Atmos. Thank you for
0: continuing to listen to Future Hindsight. Our executive producer is Mila Atmos, the audio producer is Peter Fedak, and our associate producers are Miriam Zumbul and Brooke Sayan. Be sure to listen to us on Apple Podcasts, FutureHindsight.com, or wherever you enjoy podcasts every week.